Welcome to the Shark Pod, the podcast that explores business and lifestyle design in Ireland and beyond. And now, live from Greystone Studios, here are your hosts, Luke Curry and Mark Baker. What is up, Shark Nation? Welcome to another uh, another episode of the Shark Pod. Uh, I'm live out of Greystone Studios in North Wicklow. I've got Mark Baker and Glenn Aguirre, and we've got Paul Devaney out there in London. Paul, how are you getting on? Good. Good to be with you. Absolutely. You're very welcome to the podcast. And Paul, we, I know we had a quick chat earlier on uh, about the podcast and about uh, the reason why we wanted to have you on. But I think maybe a little bit of background as well about the uh, the podcast and why uh, we reached out uh, to try to set this up. I remember when me and Mark started the podcast about a year, uh, oh, more than that, a little bit over a year ago. Back then, uh, we used to do these, this thing called commuting. Um, so I'd be on the dart in Dublin going back and forth and um, I, I wrote down a list of all of the potential guests that I'd like to have on. And I heard you on the 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 second captain's podcast uh, years ago talking about some of the Everest stuff. And uh, I just thought to myself, I'd love to have somebody on the podcast who can talk to that type of uh, adventure mindset somebody who's you know gone and tried to conquer big mountains and all that type of stuff and so that was actually one of the one of the uh, original guests that we wanted to have on uh, so we're delighted to have you on here um one of the so maybe the, we'll start off with a little bit of an introduction um so paul um is the i guess the creator of the the seven summit or irish seven summit uh project um uh, for people who don't have a lot of background in mountaineering how would you describe that paul what, what's what's that kind of project about well the project is about um trying to climb the highest peaks on all seven continents so there's a bunch of different mountaineering challenges out there as many as you could possibly name and one of them and maybe one of the bigger ones is to try and do what's called the seven summits that's the highest peak on each one of the seven continents. And like for some continents, it's it's more straightforward than others. Trying to get to Antarctica is a little bit of an epic mission. And obviously, then at the end of it all is the biggest peak in the world, Everest. So it's got some, some beasts on there. There's mountains that are not on it. Um, K2 is not on it because it's not the highest on its continent. So it's the highest on each one of the continents. And it's one of the great mountaineering feats in the world, if you like. Absolutely. And the website is, uh, for anybody who's interested in uh, adventure, if anyone's interested in um, uh, mountaineering, I love the website. It's really well put together. Um, so if uh, you go to, I, what's irish7summits.com? irish7summits.com. Yeah. It's got, uh, I've I pulled together some stats on Irish climbers that have climbed 8,000 meter peaks and all the Irish that have been on Everest. So it's kind of a half climbing, half um, mountaineering historian. <laughs> It's really, really interesting. And some of the, so you can kind of, you're ticking off uh, all of the, the seven summits um, on the website as well. And you've got great content within each one kind of documenting um, how the how the climb has gone, as well as pictures. And some of them have uh, lots of videos as well. Um, the one in Argentina, uh, Aconcagua. Aconcagua, yeah. Yeah, almost, almost nailed that one. Uh, <laughs> uh, has some great videos as well. So if anybody's interested, just especially these days where we're locked in our house and we're, we're thinking about maybe what the next adventure should be for us. Those, those types of uh, websites that give you that kind of inspo um, is always a, a good place to start, I think. But uh, anyone who's interested in that, you can go have a look there. But like, maybe we'll cast the cast the, the time back here because this is, so you've, could, you've done six and the last one is Mount Everest and there's two kind of epic uh, um, kind of uh, endings to the last two attempts that we might get into. But what, what, brings a guy from Longford uh, what what brings him to this type of uh, challenge what, how did this all start 
Yeah, it's 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 not the great peaks of Longford anyway. Um, I, I got into mountaineering fairly late on, I suppose, in mountaineering terms, I, my mid twenties. Um, so I wasn't a mountaineer at heart from when I was a kid. Um, I'd moved over to the UK in about 2001 to start work. I worked for a jet engine company in the Midlands of the UK. And while I was there, they were doing like charity challenges for Three Peaks and different things like that. So we went and done the Three Peaks Challenge in the UK, um, which is basically the highest in England, Scotland and Wales in under 22 hours. And I thought, this is, this is fantastic. I love this. Um, didn't think much of it. And the following year, I got posted over to Hong Kong to do an assignment for a year there with Cathay Pacific and work and live in the airline. And while I was in Hong Kong, that's really where I got the bug to climb mountains. And it started off not with mountains, but with Gaelic football. I was playing Gaelic football with the Hong Kong Gaelic football team. And we were in the Asian tournament. We were in the Chinese All-China tournament. And it was, it was pretty serious stuff, actually. It was a lot more serious than I was used to. And uh, we were training in pretty high humid conditions, or pretty humid conditions, very hot. Um, and it was actually great training for the likes of, you know, m- mountains and going to base camp. And somebody in the office suggested to me before I finish my assignment and go back that I should go to Nepal and, and experience base camp. And honestly, I, it had never entered my head that you could do it. Uh, I'd never associated things like going to base camp of Everest as being something like a normal person could just rock up, train a little bit and do it. So I went and bought the gear, um, got to Kathmandu, went to base camp. And I got hooked. And there was a few little ingredients along the way that hooked me. I read a book along the way that had a reference to Seven Summits in it. And I got really curious along the route about what that was about. Um, and then you get up into base camp and there's a peak beside it. And it's mostly shale, but it's like a, a peak called Kalapatar. And you get up to the top of that and you look around and it's basically 360 degree views of some of the highest mountains in the world. And it doesn't look real. It's just, it's just incredible. And it blew me away. And I thought... This is very interesting. This is accessible, which I didn't think it was. This is really good for your health. Um, and it's the perfect anecdote to, you know, the intensity of office life. Um, and people can do this. So I went from a complete imposter to a big convert in the space of seven days. And the it's such an interesting uh, thing that you talk about, about seeing the, those types of views for the first time. And I was... I was working in in finance uh, out of university and we took a a trip to South America for a few months and we went all the way down the spine of the Andes and we did all, that's kind of, that's really, before then I never did any trekking or anything really, uh, more than just around Wicklow, (laughs) you know, like, uh, but the, uh, when you, when you get up to a certain uh, height and you see those types of uh, mountains, it is, there's a, it's an excitement that I never really, uh, kind of felt before uh and that type of being so uh, like far away from civilization as well because all these uh, mountains are so inhospitable and, and stuff like that but um and the the people that you meet on these types of uh treks and we did like we didn't do uh Aconcagua Aconcagua uh one or anything like that but we did some uh some ones that went quite high up um and then we did Kilimanjaro a couple of years ago um me and my wife um which was a great experience as well we might talk about that later on too um but when you get to so when you get to base base camp you can just go ahead and just get a, a, a can anyone can just go get a tour of that or do you need to get like is there a special visa that you need or what, how do you actually how do you get to Everest base camp if you had to uh, very easily um most people go in groups because there's a certain well there's a certain attraction and a certain benefit in going in groups you know it's seven days the conditions are are difficult relative to the comfort of home so 
you know, you're high, you're cold. Um, most people suffer some element of altitude sickness along the way. So being in groups just helps that along a great deal. Um, but you can go on your own. You can, um, most people go via tea house, tea house routes rather than, you know, putting down tents. You can do either, but most people will do tea houses. So it, it's, a, it's a really pleasant trek to, to a large degree where you're just over, maybe over the course of a week, you're going in through tea houses, in through villages, gaining altitude and kind of hoping the whole way that your body will just adapt right. And there's no guarantee that it will and there's no guarantee that it won't. And it's very different for everyone. And it's not always a function of how well you've trained or, you know, how fit you are. It, it can be a function of the DNA lottery as well. So you're kind of just hoping for the best as you go along and, and just wowed by all these views. It's such the, the, I found, I found the, the outcome or the, uh, you know, the uh, altitude sickness that it seemed to affect more like uh, people completely differently, you know, um, right. it never really, uh, well, like I've never been that high, but it, when we were in those zones where people did feel, start to feel sick, I didn't really feel anything different, but we were on, um, Kilimanjaro and on the last day we were going up with a, a group and there was a, a, an American woman who was like a, an Ironman woman or Iron Woman whatever she does like iron man uh yeah full iron man stuff that you know so she's super super fit and she was incredibly incredibly sick on the last day just before the summit like like almost uh couldn't uh kind of function at that stage it was really really strange um so it is it is it's something that it's hard to plan for if you've never done it before but do you over time like does are you kind of banking <laughs> that ability over time so if you're go if you go on one uh thing and you're kind of sick and then the next time you go back to that type of altitude do you have any kind of residual benefit or is it you're kind of it's a D dna lottery what do you think of it like, like muscle memory um you you bank the ability to recognize your symptoms earlier or better um sometimes you can bank altitude it does stay in your system for a little bit but it does wash out so, you, you know, you, the chances that you go to a year later to Kilimanjaro and you have the benefits of the previous year, uh, probably not. Um, it's, it's no more than a few months and it's going to start to wash out of your system. Um, but, yeah, you, you do bank the ability to recognize the symptoms, which is a really important thing. Because if you can get in front of it early enough, you know, you can, you can avoid most of it. But most people don't see the symptoms. Most people are in a rush to either be seen to be the head of the pack or to get to the next base early to show that they're strong and, you know, right, we're ready for the next day. I'm not showing any weakness here. Yeah. They're the people who fall over invariably. Yeah. And sometimes I'll be one of those in the early stages of all of this, and then you learn your lessons and the mountain kicks your ass, and then you, you, you figure out how this game works. And the, gu the guides that I assume are there with you, are they more, are they considerably more adapted to that kind of environment? They Is are. Really if you're, if you're in the Himalayas, um, mm. you're there with, with mostly with Sherpa. Um, the, the people who work in the mountains in Nepal are not all Sherpa, but most of them are. So Sherpa is an ethnic group, but there are other ethnic groups from within Nepal that also work on the mountains. But the Sherpa have an advantage because they're originally from the Tibetan plains and, you know, they've, their ancestors have, have evolved at an altitude that the rest of us have not. And so they have, their, their red blood cell production is very different to ours. You know, their, their ability to transport oxygen around the body to the muscle cells is very different to yours and mine. It's And, and Mark, it can be kind of frustrating when you when you see that for the first time, because the mm. like on, on Kilimanjaro, like at, at some at some stages, like on the day like three or four, it goes into kind of like a, a drill dry area. And that's when I started to feel a little bit sick, just because it felt like very like 
you know hard to keep uh, hydrated and stuff like that so everyone was kind of slowing down and the guys who the, who are the the porters uh you know carrying all the gear and stuff like that they were literally running up mm. like and, and they were singing they were happy i was happy too but happy in a more i'm achieving something happy rather than uh what have i done happy kind of there's a mixture there you know uh but the it, it is frustrating when you see them and they're just so they, their adaptation is uh just vastly different like you know it's extraordinary yeah, it's, it's extraordinary yeah and their capacity to accept pain and suffering is slightly different so their whinge coefficient is different yeah for sure <laughs> <laughs> like, and just to, yeah just to go back to the to the training paul um so what does the typical training regime look like? How long do you have to prepare in advance? Is any any peak require different training? Oh, very much, yeah. The the, the smaller peaks like uh, the Kilimanjaro's, the Elbrus's of the world, um, you know, you're not doing any training beyond what you'd normally do if you were tackling, say, a marathon or something like that. You're, you're trying to get as much time on hills so you have a lot of functional training, but you don't need specialist training. You don't need technical gear training. Um, you do need winter skills training when you get to the one in Russia, to Elbrus. So you do need to make sure you understand how, you know, how to cross crevasses correctly, how to get yourself out of a crevasse if you get into it, um, how to deal with ropes, how to use your ice axe, that sort of stuff. So we've done it progressively because we didn't have, when I started this, and it was, it was myself and a bunch of my buddies from our class at UL, and we all just decided to give it a go. And we kind of... I disguised it all in, right, we're going to do Kilimanjaro and don't tell them about the seven peaks. Um, so, you know, we basically trained for Kilimanjaro as a thing in isolation. And, and the training for Kilimanjaro, you know, you do your gym work so you're able to carry your bag without feeling it. And you do a lot of running to make sure you've got, you know, your, your lungs are, are, are in good shape. Um, but you don't do a lot of technical training because you don't need it. When we got to Russia, we had to go to Scotland and do a heck of a lot of winter skills training and learn how to use equipment and learn how to get ourselves out of trouble and then go across to the Alps and do some Alpine um, familiarization courses so that we were familiar in different settings for what we were going to go on and deal with. And even with all of that, we found you know, that when we got to Russia, the conditions started to affect our ability to manage our gear. So you've, it's not just the physical training. You've got, to, you've got to train how to manage your gear and how to have it all be second nature when the conditions are really, really hard as well. So we learned that as we went along. But then when you get into the bigger mountains like Denali in Alaska, Aconcagua to some degree, but especially Denali, you're into a full, big three-week expedition with all of the gear. You have to be second nature able to use all of your equipment, and you have to be able to recognize how to deal with yourself up at 6,000 meters plus. So it, it does change. And then when you get up into the Everest of the world, you're into really specialist training where rather than just training your body to be fit, you have to really zone in on the areas of the mountain you're going to be at and what you need for them. So when you're crossing the icefall, you need to be nimble. Um, you need to be strong for that little bit. When you're you know, hauling yourself up the Lotse face, you need your forearms to be really strong. Um, there's other areas where you need your calves to be really strong. So you're, you're zeroing in on exact parts of your body that you're going to use and what training suits all of those rather than just going out and running, which is great. Or the bigger mistake that people would make is to just throw themselves into the gym and just lift everything they can get and make themselves huge and bulky and muscly. And then all of that oxygen has to feed all of those muscles. And you find out that you're basically depriving yourself of all the oxygen you need for everything else. And you become very sick at altitude. So it's just getting the mix right. It's it's so interesting that you have to, you're tackling a mountain by mountain. Maybe there's not 
just a, a one car a one size fits all uh, approach to all these ones and it seems like when you so the Kilimanjaro was the first one on the on the list that you did right that's right yeah when i got to the top i had this weird sad feeling when i saw the uh, the sign and i saw said how how tall it was i can't remember now i think it's just under 5000 meters something like that 5895 five, yeah, five eight nine five. Um, so when I got to the top, I, I had this kind of sad feeling that I don't think I'm ever going to go any higher than this. <laughs> Do you know what I, mean? I was like, I don't like how unless I, I I take it to the next level. That's probably as far as I'm going to go in my life. On a, on a that's, that's how that's it felt a good like. feeling to have. Most people would have the feeling of I don't ever intend going any yeah. higher than this in my life. <laughs> throw up on the ground and then run back down the mountain. So I, I'd say you've had a good experience there. Well, I did. I th- Just to put that into, into context, lads, how, how tall is, is Everest? Everest is 8,800 meters. So you're looking at um, what's it's the difference of, let's see, um, I'm trying to think of it in feet. It's 19,350 feet to get up Kilimanjaro and it's 29,035 feet to get up Everest. But, but in between those two, apart from it being the difference of like 10,000 feet, when you get up, you know, when you get up above what it's about almost 6,000 meters Kilimanjaro. So your lung functions at about 50% and your oxygen concentration is about 50%. When you get up to, you know, 7,000 meters, that drops, your lung function goes down to 37%. And by the time you get to the top of Everest, you know, you're, you're looking lower than that and at 33% oxygen concentration. So there's a there's a tipping point that happens between five thousand and six thousand meters, and then one that happens a bigger one between six and seven, and then there's a world between seven and eight. Eight. Okay. Okay. And just this might be a morbid question, but it's a question I'm sure people do ask. Like percentage wise, what what percentage risk is there that you, that you don't come back, that you don't make it back from going down? Um, on Everest, there's about ten people a season on average don't come back. That's the, probably the simplest way to look at it. Okay. Uh, now, n- numbers are a lot bigger, and therefore, in a percentage terms, the risk has gone down a lot. So if I look at Everest, the Everest between the year 2000 and now is a very different Everest than the Everest between 1953 and 2000. Um, so the, the, a huge amount more people, um, and it's become significantly safer because there's a lot better weather reports now. Uh, there's a lot better rescue capability to some degree. Um, so, you know, people are going there maybe more capable in some ways. Um, so the, it, it, if you look at it as a percentage, it, it's definitely one of the lower of the 8,000 meter peaks, which might be a surprise because it's the one you always hear about. Mm. Um, but, you know, you compare it to K2, you've got a one in four chance of dying in K2. Jesus. Um, you know, if you look at Annapurna 2, you've got even bigger chance of dying. Uh, if you look at the stats for how many people die in the Alps on Mont Blanc every year, it's astounding. Um, that one's it, really it, it, surprising as well because that that one seems like it's pretty achievable as well. It's just that from falling or from uh, avalanches, avalanches. Um, and most a lot of people that are well, not a lot of people, but quite a few people um, climb Mont Blanc from other faces as well. Okay. So it's not all coming up the same route that I've gone up. Maybe you've gone up. Um, that that might be the safe route if you like. Um, but there's people coming up the other side of the mountain on a trickier route. They're trying something new or something different. And there's a lot of avalanches out there, and the weather's changing in the Alps. The climate's changing, so there's a lot more avalanches, and there's a lot more risk out there than maybe there was before. So, yeah, there's. It, it, I, I'm the last person to say that climbing Everest is safe. It's not. It's an objectively unsafe thing to do, um, because you're in extreme altitude, and you have no idea what's going to happen to your body when you get to extreme altitude on any particular day. 
Um, but there are mechanisms in place by which you can reduce the risk and protect yourself if you're so inclined to make that effort before you go. It's it's a it's an interesting thing as well how even if they're the ones you don't hear about might be the ones that are maybe the more challenging ones or the more you know um, one of the one of the things that I was wondering as well is so when I went to um, like after so yeah the day I came back from Kilimanjaro I'm like okay let's have a little peek and around and see if there's anything else I can kind of. I can kind of jump on that isn't uh, that I don't have to get like an ice pick out for anytime soon. Just that type of way. I think there's a jump between just being able to you know go up a mountain, um, you know maybe deal with some scree where you're kind of scrambling, but uh, actually having technical skills for for climbing. That's kind of where I'm kind of top topping out there. So I, I was having a look at um, uh, Agangawa, and uh, I love Argentina. I think I'd love to build a kind of trip around that. You know. Uh, at some stage um, but on your website and on other websites I, I've seen um, that they it has a really high failure rate um, even though uh, maybe it's not so technical why do you after after uh, completing that one what, what's what's the, the reason for that do you think that people are, are turning back a lot and some of it is weather the weather can be really fickle down there um, so you climb it in December and early January and a lot of people find that by the time their summit window comes up, it's maybe 24 hours big and they've got to make it or, or lose the entire thing because the weather's coming in. So a lot of people have got weathered out on Aconcagua. The other side of it is that the last bit on Aconcagua, most of Aconcagua is like a day on Kilimanjaro. It just keeps getting higher. So uh, the, the high camp on Aconcagua is the same height as the summit of Kilimanjaro. So when you're up in that high camp, life is, is it's a little bit miserable. Um, but the hiking is not really all that different. Uh, it's a bit more moonscape throughout than the early stages of Kilimanjaro, but otherwise it's pretty similar. But from the high camp to the summit is a different deal. You get to a point maybe about an hour and a half to an hour before the summit on a very long summit day, and you get to a place called the Canaletta, and that's where you run into the scree and the loose rock. And if you arrive there and it's frozen and you know in good condition, you can you can get up that thing fairly quickly and fairly easily, and it's not a pain. If you don't, it's you know one step forward, three steps back for an hour and a half. And watch that break people down when they're at that altitude, suffering from the altitude sickness. So what happens there is that the psychology of it starts to kick in big time. And people's ability to just knuckle down and just not care about the misery starts to get called into question at that point. And you find out who's got that level of resilience to push through and who doesn't. And it's, it's a natural thing. In some, in some ways, some people have prepared for the misery. They know exactly what's coming. But, you know, at 7,000 meters, you're feeling, you're, you're starting to get to you, you, maybe about 500 meters from needing supplemental oxygen at that point if you're on Everest. So, you know, you're, you're getting into a zone where life is getting fairly difficult and you've got these underfoot conditions. And if you fall down and try to get back up at like 6,900 meters, it just feels like you've been kicked 10 times, you know. Yeah. So that, when we got to the Canaletta, we sat down for, for lunch to, just to get a sandwich. And um, I think there were 17 of us because it was two teams combined into one. Uh, 17 of us sat down and I think maybe seven of us got up and continued to the summit. And everyone else turned back. So if you take into account that's a two-week expedition to that point and you're an hour from the summit and 10 people have said, I can't do this anymore. You know, and some of that is I can't because they physically can't put a, It's the first time I've seen people not being able to put one foot in front of the other. 
Um, and first time I really got familiar with that notion that you physiologically can't stop. Like you physiologically can be at a point where you just can't do it, even though there's nothing stopping you, the conditions aren't stopping you, you just can't put one foot in front of the other. But some people couldn't do it. Um, and luckily, some of us could and we pushed on. And do you, do you psychologically then prepare for this? Is there anything you can do to prepare well, mindset-wise? You, you can be an Irish trekker and trek in the Galtys with the sleet and snow blowing sideways in your face. Um, that's tremendous. And I'm, I'm not being glib. That's actually tremendous training. Um, <laughs> you, you have to train in hard conditions. We tried to get up to Scotland to do some training for that as well. I went back out into the Alps prior to that to do some training as well. Um, but you try to put yourself in situations where this is hard, you know, and it's either hard because you're lugging a really heavy load with you or it's hard because the conditions are hard. And if you can and you're able and it's safe, it's good to get into a situation where the conditions are hard and you can test yourself. But, but not How heavy is the, backpack, is, the back, is the gear on your back? Well. Um, on Akinkagwe, you've got, you're building camps, so you're, not, you know, you, you're, not, you're never more than a few days from the big camp. So it's not as if you're away, you know, on a, on a progressive expedition where you're carrying everything on every step of the way to the next camp. You can leave a whole lot of stuff behind you. So you won't be carrying more than about 20 kilos at best on Aconcagua, whereas on other mountains you'll be carrying 25 plus and a few shovels. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it does. And, and you can reduce the load on Aconcagua quite a lot if you're, if you're good at your gear management because you can, you know, you can, you can leave a lot of stuff behind you at certain camps that you really don't need for the next day. Is it is it tough to is it tough to sleep at the end of the day? It can be, yeah. Up, up at um, up at the high camp in Aconcagua is, is a tough one to sleep. I've never had great problems sleeping. I I could sleep on a nocturne rake, you know. So I'm lucky in that regard. But some people really are light sleeper. If you're a light sleeper, the the the, the Venn diagram of light sleepers and good mountaineers, I'd say there's not much crossover there, you know. Um, because you really do need your sleep to be successful on mountains. More than you need a lot of other things, you need your sleep. Now, some people will decide, well, they'll take a half a Diamox or something like that to just help them with the altitude during their sleep. That's a perfectly acceptable way of doing it if that suits you. Um, and that sometimes gives people enough bandwidth to get the sleep that they need. Um, but I've been lucky in that I've never really had any problems sleeping, problems getting up at three in the morning to get head off, but uh, no problems sleeping, thank God. It's, that's the thing they used to so I used to I used to be so at the just be knackered anyway so I'd be straight to sleep at whatever half eight in the evening and then sleep till morning then uh, and come and dry they wake you up for wash wash they bring around a little thing of water for you to kind of uh, rinse yourself off, off in your tent before I was saying uh, you know me and my wife in there you know we, we were we were together a long time before that and I think that was probably a good thing <laughs> but um, anyway <laughs> anyway I digress so the one of the so we're we're, we're kind of we're we're climbing our way up to the the, the, the stories about the uh, about the uh, Everest uh, but one more thing I wanted to just talk about before we jump in there is the your experience in Antarctica uh, and getting there and how difficult that is most people like I, I know people who I want to go to Antarctica as a as a goal in itself or as a life uh you know at yeah, a bucket list type thing um but surely like climbing something like that it's gotta be a, a big financial burden uh is it is it difficult to organize that are there is there infrastructure there are you doing a lot of that kind of stuff yourself how, do, how does that work it's very heavily regulated actually um there's one company called ale who manage all of the people coming in and out of the continent and they do that through a series of 
maybe a handful of companies that they give permits to, to, to allow climbing on the mountain. So if you want to climb, you'll contact one of maybe five different companies around the world who offer expeditions. And they all route back to the same desk and the same company who then manages everything. So the cost between any of the different companies is negligible because they're all basically offering and charging the same thing. And everyone gets there via the same plane and everyone gets back via the same plane. There aren't options on that. So, I mean, the logistics for it are epic, but you, the largest part of your logistics is your own preparation and getting the cost together. It's a, it's a $35,000 expedition. So it's no joke. And that's probably why a lot of folks have not done the Seven Summits because that one is quite inaccessible. It's a heck of a lot of money. It's not an Everest at the end. You know, you're not getting a, an 8,000-meter peak out of it. You're getting a, you know, less than 5,000-meter peak out of it. Um, so that turns a lot of people off. But uh, to get there, you basically have to get yourself down to the bottom tip of South America, to Punta Arenas. Um, and you've got to get on a Russian military transport plane huge big Aleutian IL-73, I think. Um, and that flies you the whole way down to a research station called Union Glacier, drops you on the ice, on the Blue Ice Runway. And then from there, you're going to get another small little twin otter, which will bring you across to the base camp of the mountain. And from there, then your expedition of two weeks starts. It's true. It's, it's just a, like, how do you just, okay, like if you're going on these uh, adventures, how are you just sitting in the office, you know, looking at a spreadsheet or something, or do you know, like, are you just, or you think about that when something like that big, that big investment in not just money, but kind of like, you know, you're gonna, it, it's gonna be a very exciting time in your life. Those two weeks, you don't, you don't really know what's gonna happen. The, it's probably minus God knows what uh, Celsius there. Even I guess you, you, you do it in there in a good time of year to, to climb that but still I'm sure that it's not a I'd say it's nippy out there is it uh, Paul? <laughs> it's, it can be nippy yeah the summit was minus 38 degrees Celsius Okay, um, oh, and you know it's very pleasant when you're coming down and there's a little bit of sun beating up it comes off the snow and you can get sunburn you have to watch your, you're not walking with your mouth open because you'll burn the whole inside of your mouth from the reflection of the sun off the snow um, but you do come down with the inside of your nose heavily burned and with a lot of sunburn, you know, off a minus 38 degree um, summit. But when you get into the shade at all, it gets cold. Um, it gets extremely cold. But by that stage, you know, we, our gear had progressed at that point to a level where we were, we were bringing Everest gear to Antarctica to trial it before we got to Everest. Because there's no point in having that gear for some of the other mountains because it's complete overkill and you're just going to be far too warm and far too heavy. So the point to get a lot of the Everest gear was was Antarctica, and that was the big trial for all that gear. And so, okay, let's let's do let's do this now, right? So you've got you've you've gone around to all the other ones. Um, Denali was that actually bef- that was before you attempted Everest at all, was it? Denali was in 2010, so that was before I'd gone to um, Antarctica. So Denali is okay. uh, Denali is kind of the line between the trekking peaks and mountain you know high altitude long-term mountaineering that's a that's a proper big expedition in the true sense of the word and we didn't think going to that we were going to succeed because it's a big big mountain to climb three weeks to do it dragon sleds all the rest of it um and we got we got over that and we thought well actually that's the first time i think we realistically thought we might have a shot at completing this and the three so three weeks and it's almost it's i'd say i'd, I'd imagine it's quite isolated there as well you're kind of on you're away from civilization in Denali. Like there's no. You're way up there. You 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 um you drive the whole way up to Takitna in Alaska. The very well, not the very north, but north enough. And then you get on a plane, and the plane lands you on the glacier 
and the Hilton Glacier um, and dumps out all your stuff and the plane flies away and it'll come back in three weeks. That's amazing. So off you go. And so you're, you're roped together, you're crossing crevasse fields, um, you're dragging sleds because you've got, you've got to bring everything for three weeks. So you've got your sled full of gear, you've got your backpack on your back, you're dragging your sleds roped together across this incredibly beautiful, but it's all ice and snow landscape. Um, and you're building your camps as you go along. And, and then eventually it gets too steep, so you dump the sleds, dump everything you don't need, big, dig a hole, come back for it later. And then you head up the steep parts and start to prepare for high camp and then for the summit push. It's, a, it's one of the most dramatic and incredible mountains I've ever been on. Wow. It's an amazing mountain. I remember when we'd done the summit ridge, the summit ridge is about maybe a foot wide, and then it slopes off, you know, 8,000 feet drops on either side. Um, and the U.S. Air Force were flying their, I think maybe their F-16s overhead, because a lot of U.S. Air Force bases up in Alaska. So we're getting distracted trying to focus on this like one foot width in front of us to get to the summit with all these jets flying over our heads. But it's, it's, an, it's an amazing mountain. It's very hard to climb. The weather is incredibly fickle again, like in South America. Uh, and we were really lucky that the weather window was just right and we went for it. Um, but the summit day is a 16-hour day, and it's probably the most exhausted I've ever been in my life. Um, and, uh, and then you just pick up from there, wake up the next morning, put all your gear and your shovels in your backpack, and then just make one big burst the whole way down the mountain to get to your plane so that you don't miss it. <laughs> and uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's an insane. That's the expedition that really consolidated our view that we might have. We might well have what it takes, and we might just have that little bit of luck that you need as well to get to the end of this, you know? And so the luck s- starts to run out, I think, after that, um, with some of the, some of the <laughs> yeah. next couple of tracks, if, 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 I'm, not, uh, if I'm not incorrect. But the, the, the so th- Mark Baker, three, three weeks. Have you ever been on holidays for three weeks? Have you ever taken, I was in Praia Russia for three weeks and it was like an eternity. That's uh, in the Algarve uh, when I was 20. We, hadn't, we, we didn't have any other money to travel around. So we just stayed put for three weeks. But I remember thinking, Jesus Christ, this is a f- I, don't, I, I feel like I'm never going to go home. So the so three weeks on the, on the mountain there. Uh, that one seems very interesting. Well, you got me, th- Paul, you got me thinking here. Mark's going to be going mad right now after, afterwards. I'll be like uh, Shark Pod live from Denali National Park. Live from Denali. <laughs> yeah. And the, the thing about the three weeks is that it becomes your entire holiday. Like that's your entire vacation for the year. There's nothing else. Yeah. So like I'm working all the time up until I do Antarctica. I'm working while I'm doing the other mountains. So basically you are banking all of your vacation to either go and train somewhere like in Scotland or in the Alps or to actually do one of the expeditions. So for, you know, from 2007 through to 2013, every holiday you're taking there is basically a mountain. So it's it's not the from a family slash girlfriend slash wife perspective it's not the greatest friend in the world, um, but from every other perspective you know you get three weeks out into the mountains and you realize you're actually able to completely reset yourself in three weeks. I can imagine if you, yeah, if you, if you're after conquering Denali and then you come back and there's some you know something uh, wrong at work you're like this is going to be fine I'll be I'm not yeah. going to get I'm not going to get emotionally invested in this problem uh, you know. Uh, there's no there's no avalanche coming through the office right now, so I'm, I'm, I think I'm all good. Okay, cool. So we've got we've got up to this point. We've got the the kind of genesis story why why you guys got getting are getting going. Loads of those little uh, uh, experiences along the way. Okay, this is the this is 2015 first attempt uh, at Everest. Is that, 14. is that 14? Okay, 14. And this is the one where uh, there was uh, an avalanche, or is this the 
the earthquake no it's the avalanche it's the avalanche okay um so uh, did you guys actually get to go there or was this what how, how did that uh the avalanche affect your plans we were on the way into base camp so normally your base camp trek takes you about seven days if you're doing base camp our base camp trek takes us 20 days because we zoom in and out of doing actual mountain climbs on the way. So you'll do a 6,000 meter, you'll do a Denali level climb on your way to base camp, maybe even two of them. Um, So we were on our last big climb before getting into base camp to settle in and get ready for the high mountain. So we'd split the mission up into the adaptation stuff, which is about 20 days. And then you get into base camp for about five days, settle in, and then you've got about 25 days after that of rotations up and down the mountain before you can get your summit bit. So there's the pre-Everest bit and the post and, the, and then the Everest bit. So we were just finishing the pre-Everest bit. We were on a, a peak called um, Lobogé, which is just next to base camp, overlooks base camp, about 6,100 6, meters. Um, and we were doing our last bit of adaptation. And the reason you do that mountain is because it's the same height as camp one on Everest. So if you're adapted fully, then your trip through the ice fall the first time to get to camp one won't be so painful and awful. And that's important because the ice fall is deadly dangerous. Um, so we were just coming off that, got up to the summit. We didn't realize anything was wrong. We'd heard some rumbles, but you always hear rumbles. And then when we got down into the village, um, we'd heard that there'd been a massive avalanche and a lot of people had been killed. So we strolled off up into base camp to start our base camp life. And when we arrived in, the helicopters were still trying to long line out all the survivors and the people that, that had died. And it became apparent that you know, 16 people had died. They'd found 13 of them. Three of them they never found, still haven't found. Yeah. And they were basically all um, mountain workers. So the readers, Sherpa or non-Sherpa. Um, and they were bringing goods from base camp up to camp one to get ready for the next week when everyone was going to start populating camp one. And a big Serac had just attached on one side of the icefall and just come thundering down. It was about the size of an SUV. I came plowing down through the ice wall and just crashed straight into them um, and killed 16 of them. There's a lot of them, but about six of them were badly, badly injured, never worked again. So like in numeric terms, that was the biggest disaster the mountain had ever seen at that point. But, you know, we walked into base camp and like everyone in base camp knows these guys. Our Sherpa knew them. Everyone knows everyone in the Kumbu yeah. Valley. And, you know, it, it's, it, was, it was deep mourning for a few days and then it turned into a big industrial dispute and it was anger. And it was the Sherpa versus the government. And it was meetings and it was loud shouting and noise for days on end. And it was meetings at base camp, meetings at Kathmandu. Uh, and then eventually the, the, the Everest season was cancelled after about seven days. So we got to see the, 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 the impact directly on the Sherpa. Then we got to see the political element of it. Then we got to see the personal element of it on the Sherpa trying to fight for their rights in the valley. Uh, so we got to see a whole side of the Everest machine that we kind of knew was there, but, you know, if, if you're lucky and you get to Everest and you get there and you get back all in one piece and you succeed, you never get exposed to it, really. Yeah. Um, we got exposed to all the fractures, and it really opened our eyes to a lot of different things as well. And at that stage, so you're, are you kind of on tender hooks a little bit for that week? You don't know if it's, is it time to go home? Do I book something? Or, like, how are you guys just hanging out for that week? Well, if you're, if you're like, if I was in Longford looking at an RTE and I see the story, my conclusion would be that's, that's that done. Everyone needs to come home. It's a big disaster. But when you're in it, it's a lot more, it's a lot more tricky and nuanced, you know? Like people were sat in base camp trying to figure out what do we do now? Like, do we keep going? Yeah. Is it okay to keep going? Is that disrespectful? 
Is that even allowed? Should we do it? Um, do you want to cross the area where they were all killed? Yeah. Should I? You know, so you're kind of tossing these things around. And they're all real questions because you have to make a decision at that point. And our Sherpa wanted to go. Um, some team Sherpas did not. Some Sherpas wanted to go. And, you know, from their perspective, Everest is a dangerous place. And from their perspective, this is where they work. And I'm not saying that they come to work expecting that to happen. They shouldn't. But um, they, they factor in a level of risk into their experience. And they, they want to get paid. And they want to continue to use that money to put their kids through school and all the things that are associated. So we're part of a chain. And sometimes we ignore the fact that the chain exists because it's, it, it doesn't suit us. But we were part of a serious chain that year that, that they didn't want to necessarily break very easily. So there was a lot of complex things going on there. And in the end, the politics really strong-armed everything else. And the fact that the government weren't giving the Sherpa community some of what they needed really became the deciding factor in killing the season rather than what had happened causing the season to end. And that might seem objectively strange, but that's the complexity of, of Everest, you know? Well, and like obviously their economy is highly based on tourism. Just not to go on a tangent, but right now, like how are they getting on during COVID and stuff? Not well, um, and not well last year either. So this is their second year now that people aren't trekking up and down. And the Kumbu Valley is just so busy. Like the, the footfall there is incredible. And the footfall in Langtang and the footfall in Annapurna, you know, the, the entire industry in those areas is around people coming and trekking. There is no social security and in, in, there's no pensions, there's no dole system, you know. So the, when you get out into the valleys, people's lives are ruled by themselves. There's no connection between them and central government in Kathmandu. Um, so if people don't come, they don't get no money. And if they don't get the money, they can't put their kids through the schools. And a lot of the money that's being used, you know, it, they are doing well relative to everyone else in Nepal. You know, a, a mountain uh, worker, a Sherpa who climbs Everest, is like an astronaut over there. You know, they, they, they earn a huge amount of money relative to a lot of people in the country. And they're able to do things with that money that a lot of other people can't. And so a lot of them will invest in tea houses. They'll run multiple tea houses and they may put their kids to school and they may do that outside of Nepal as well. And the purpose for that is to let's get people educated and let's lift the entire floor. So all of us guys who go over there, we want Nepal to stay exactly the same. This Shangri-La, let's keep it exactly the same. Everyone there wants it to change. They, they, they want their values to become you know, more progressive. They want jobs. They want their kids to become scientists and engineers and to study and universities in the UK and Ireland and US. So they want normal things like the rest of us want. So, you know, when, when you break that link, as has happened this season and last season, it's, you know, just as it happened with the earthquake, it's, it's a big, big impact. And they take it directly. There's no, there's, no, there's no way that they can apply for a grant from government because pandemic hit them. They're not going to mm -hmm. get that. It's such a... It, uh, the, the, the ripple effect of all, all that's happened in the last couple of... Well, last year now has been uh like it, like i said on the development of these countries it just stops right straight away um but the so that's in 2014 so eventually it, it's all cancelled and you guys uh, go home um are you guys at that stage saying we're coming back to do this or are you thinking that was our shot let's uh, kind of let's get on with or are you guys steadfast as okay we're coming back as soon as we can to give this another go what's the morale like after after that type of disappointment we got back to Kathmandu, and I think all of us had left a foot in the door. Um, we spoke to our Sherpa and our expedition owner. We went with a Nepal-owned and operated outfit. And, 
you know, we spoke to them and we said that we were interested in coming back potentially next year and could we leave the door open. Um, so I think a lot of us were, um, but the thing about climbing mountains is like people will say to you, it's always there, right? And sure, it'll be there next year. It's the mountain's always there. The mountain's always there, but the circumstances around where you can go and do that thing isn't always the same. And you have to grab out a circumstance that is there. And I'd come out of doing, you know, a year living in an altitude house at UL. I'd come out of a year of intense physiological, you know, guidance and work that's not easily, you know, replicated. Um, So when I looked at it, I thought, well, I need to get back to work now because I, you know, I'd gone out of work to do Antarctic and Everest and I needed to get back to work or I was going to have to find a new career. It was either that or give this another go and let's just push through based on the last year and a half to two years of solid work that we've done in getting to this particular point. And that was the difficult decision I had to make. Do I just ditch this and come back to it later and get back to career? Or do I let this momentum continue and have another shot at it? And I found that the physiological preparation was so unique for this one that I wasn't going to be easily able to recreate that down the road, although you can and people do. Um, the opportunity was there to do something very special, especially with the team at UL, that I, I thought, well, let's give this another go and let's see if we can get back there. Nice. And so, okay, then you so you put all that together and then the next time you go, what's the what's the story there? That's the this the, the earthquake that we all heard about uh, around that time, right? Yeah. Um, so got back there the second year. I, I redesigned the, the uh, itinerary. So sat, I sat down with the expedition owner and I wasn't so keen to go across the ice fall all those times given what had happened the previous year. Okay. Um, one, one thing so before, we, before just I, when you say ice fall, what, what is an uh, ice fall? Is it like a, like a, I know it sounds like it's where ice falls, but is it, is that kind of what it is? Is that, am I? It's, it's kind of like that. It's, it's the area where the, um, where between base camp and camp one, um, where the uh, glacier, that, uh, that base camp is sitting on is crashing into the physical mountain that is Everest. That's the best way of describing it. When you're in it, it's just towers and, and chasms of ice that you have to, it's, it's like a children's playground that you're meandering through, you're crossing ladders on crevasses to get over them to the next spot. So you're going to cross five or six, you know, aluminium ladders on your way through the ice fall. And all the time the ice fall is, is moving. You're not aware of it moving while you're on it, but you can put a camera on it overnight and you'll see it moving. So it's constantly on the move. Um, and that ice is constantly breaking off and falling down. And so you, what you're trying to do is before the season starts, there's, there's a bunch of um, specialist Sherpa called the Icefall Doctors. And they go into the Icefall and they figure out for that season with all the movement that's happened, what's the best route through the Icefall for that year? And so they'll look at the best route, they'll put the ladders in. And sometimes it's to the left side, sometimes it's to the right side, sometimes it's down the middle. Uh, we were in 2015 now on the entire opposite side to what was happening in 2014. And that was driven entirely by the fact that the Serac had broken off on that side that year. But when you go to the right side, you've got some risk of rocks and ice coming down off Nupse, which is one of the mountains overhead. So there's no ideal solution, but they try and find an ideal solution. And what we were trying to do with our itinerary is trying to figure out, okay, how can we design this mission so that we can get all of the adaptation we need without having to go over and back on that ice wall more times than we absolutely needed to. And so we designed some of our camp one level, 6,000 meter plus adaptation to happen somewhere else. So we included a few more peaks on our trek into base camp, 
and we included Island Peak, which I'd highly recommend. It's a beautiful mountain. Um, and we got up to 6,000 meters at Island Peak and we set up tents and we slept there for a night, then climbed the mountain, then came back, slept again, and then went on from there to base camp. So by the time we rolled into base camp in 2015, we were pretty well adapted. The ice ball was in great condition. Um, actually, everything was going so well because I, I even say prior to, relative to the previous year, we were in better shape um, and the mountain was in better shape and the ice ball was just tremendous. And at, at that stage, then, are you, are you guys ready to ready to kind of go up the mountain at that stage? Like from base camp, are you, are you planning to? And then... Then yeah, we're, 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 so your, your, your adaptation is done, and then now yeah. you're into the serious business end you now of this expedition. And the way that works is that you go from base camp to camp one through the ice fall, spend a night at camp one, and then cross the ice fall, come back to base camp. And you're going to be absolutely knackered after you do that. You're going to be destroyed when you get back to base camp. It's a very difficult trip. Um, then you're going to spend about three days recovering. Then you're going to get your stuff together. You're going to go back to camp one. Then you're going to go from there to camp two, spend the night at camp two, back to camp one, then back to base camp. And you're going to notice you do it a lot quicker this time. Then you're going to rest for a few days. Then you're going to go straight past camp one this time. So straight to camp two, through the ice ball again, spend the night at camp two, go to camp three, go on some oxygen for the first time, because that's the first time on the mission you'll be using some supplemental oxygen. You might even trek beyond camp three to touch the Lotse face, back to camp three, sleep again back to camp two, sleep again, and then back to base camp. That's a big, what we call rotation. So that's your third rotation. And by that stage, you're going to be adapted pretty well for camp four. So what you're doing is you're, you're breaking the, the, the upper mountain bit into series of chunks so that by the time you get to your summit push, which is typically your fourth rotation, you're adapted to camp one, camp two, and camp three. And then you're on supplemental oxygen. And at that point, a whole bunch of dynamics means that you have to go for it at that point. So you're waiting then from about the early part of May, you're waiting for that summit window so that you can go for your last rotation. And basically what you're waiting for is the jet stream is just sitting on top of Everest all the time, 200 mile an hour winds. So as, as soon as that jet stream just moves away from the mountain, clears all of the air, that's your summit window. That summit window could be seven days. It could be 24 hours. You know, if it's a good year, you get a few days of good summit windows. If it's a bad year, like 2012 was a really bad year, 2019 was a really bad year, uh, you're going to have narrow summit windows, big crowds. So you kind of want to, you have no control over that. It's yeah. entirely down to the weather systems. It's down to the monsoons in India. It's down to a whole lot of other things. Um, so you're hoping that your weather window is going to be right. But, but your job is to make sure that before that weather window starts, that you have gone through your rotations, are in ship-shape condition, feel good, feel strong, are sleeping and are well-fed and have gone through your various adaptation roles. It's such an interesting thing. I never knew that you'd have to go up and down, up and down, up and down. Like Psychologically, that's really hard on people because a lot of people are used to progressive climbing where you, yeah. you move forward, build camp, rest, sleep, a few days, move forward, build camp. Everest is different. You're going backwards. And like for a lot of people, that has a real psychological effect on them. I can imagine that. I could be like, oh, fuck, like I'm feeling pretty good. Let's push, sure, camp three, we can fucking do that. Come on, like, <laughs> that's what well, I feel. Like, have, then I die up there. You, know, that's the you <laughs> might have gone through the, the ice fall brilliant on your second rotation and had no problems and feel really confident. And then in your third rotation, for no reason, except that on that particular day, your body just didn't feel up to it. You could have a torrid time you could get an infection, you could come back coughing and spluttering and think, this is horrible, I want to die. So, you know, you've got to, 
you've got to constantly be able to pick yourself up and tell yourself, no, that's not, this isn't the summit window here. All we're doing is preparing. So just take the good with the bad, suck it up, have a bad day, wake up the next morning and just face into it new. And, and so then, so you guys, have, did you start to do those rotations before the the earthquake? What was the, when did that come to come into, into play? So we were, um, we had been up in the ice fall the previous day. Um, we'd gone up about three quarters way towards Camp One, just as a recce to get familiar with the territory, get familiar with the ladders. I'd practiced on the ladders with the crampons, the sharp points prior to going. So, you know, I found it fairly easy getting across the ladders, but some people are slow and reticent first time to see the ladders. So you're just trying to get all those cobwebs out of the system. So we'd been most of the way up to Camp One, turned around, headed back to base camp. And our plan was that that night we were packing up and we were going to move to Camp One on our first rotation. So the day of the earthquake was the day that we were supposed to be moving up the mountain to Camp One. And could you, when the earthquake hit, what was that like? Could you feel that from where you were or where was it? Oh, very much, yeah. We were in the mess tent. We'd, just, we'd been back a few hours. We rested. We were just chilling out in the mess tent. We were on a, a, a lazy day. Like There's a few lazy days built into your calendar, and you have to really be lazy on them. There's other lazy days where, you know, it says rest day, but what they mean is go and trek somewhere, but not too far and not too hard. Um, but we were on a, no, rest yourself. We're going at midnight because you have to travel across the ice fall at nighttime when it's the, there's least chance of, it, of the crevasses widening any further than they are. Um, so, yeah, we were proper resting. And then the earthquake hit. And honestly, like, we, we heard the rumbles and we didn't pay any attention to them because there's so many of them in the vicinity of Everest. You hear so many little mini avalanches all the time. You really just dial them out. Um, and it was the lateral movement that I I just never felt movement like that before under my feet and ran outside. I grabbed the camera, which is the footage you've probably seen. I hit the record and I just held it in my hand. And when I got outside, like the entire base camp, which is about a kilometer and a half long, was just on the move. Uh, and everything was on the move. Like the mountains around you were on the move. So you had no point of reference, really. And we just had no idea what was going on. Earthquake had never been dialed into any of our planning. The Sherpa never had a major earthquake in, in uh, Nepal in their lifetime. The last big one was in 1934. Um, so everyone is looking at everyone, trying to figure out what the hell this is. And we were based at the very bottom of the icefall, our, our camp. So everyone has their own little encampment. Ours just happened to be at the very mouth of the icefall. And we were looking up into the icefall, the... the uh, Conditions were really bad that day, so it was really hard to get good visibility. And we thought the icefall was collapsing. Now, there's not much we could have done about that, and there was no point in running if it was, because you weren't going to outrun it. Um, but we, that's the kind of level of thinking we had initially, is the icefall collapsing, wow. you know, which would be an utterly ridiculous thing to have ever happened, right? But at this stage, you, you, you have no points of reference. And then we realized, no, this is an earthquake. And then nobody has planned for an earthquake. So, you know, what do you do? Um, okay, well, we know, we know we've got a. Actually, uh, your initial reaction might be if it's an earthquake, we might be all right because we're in the middle of nowhere. We're not in a built-up urban area. Yeah. Um, and, of course, we're looking into the ice fall, thinking the danger is going to come through the mist and the ice fall, and it was all heading our way, you know, at warp speed behind us. So behind us, there's two mountains called Pomore and Linkren, and the ridge between those two is just a huge area of crevasses of snow and ice and the, the earthquake had shook all of that off and it had fallen about a thousand meters onto the plateau around the same altitude as base camp and a shockwave started and that shockwave just started to move towards base camp and it picked up everything it could along the way 
and it was heading our way. And that's what we were hearing. That was the rumble. And this is a long way away, this mountain. And it was, it was on top of us in seconds. Yeah. And so when we, when we eventually saw it, one of the Sherpas shouted and we turned around and saw it. It was just a wall of a plume of white coming at us. And we couldn't really see the top or sides of it. And visibility wasn't great. Um, and that's where you think, oh, crap. <laughs> what do I do here? A second ago, I was thinking about an earthquake. And now I'm thinking about an avalanche. Um, and, of course, the previous year's experience comes into your head. You think about what happened to guys in the ice fall. Um, and the only thing we could think about was get inside and get under the table, which, you know, anyone will tell you is not the greatest idea in the world to get inside a tent during an avalanche because you, you create two problems where there's one. Um, but we wanted to get under or behind something, and that was the nearest thing to us at the time where this thing is about to be on top of us. So we figured if we can get under a structure, we'll have some hope here. And the one thing I do remember when I was under the structure was I was trying to figure out I had assumed in my own mind, we're going to get thrown into the ice fall. This, we're just going to get lifted out of here and just thrown well into the ice fall. So I was trying to brace myself for the fact that we were going to get thrown into the ice fall and then figure out what to do after that happened. That was it. I wasn't necessarily thinking we're going to die. I was just thinking we're going to get thrown into the ice fall now. Better get ourselves ready. And, and how strong is the structure, the tent that you mentioned around you? It's a, it's a big mess tent, so it seats about 10 people. Um, but, you know, it's made of, of tent material. There's a few poles holding it up. Uh, it wouldn't have taken a great deal to flatten it, but it's not as weak as the structure of, of you know, a two-person tent. It has some strength and, and, you know, rigidity to it. Inside of it, we had the equivalent of garden furniture, which is what we were sitting on, because it's your base camp for 35 days. So you try and make it reasonably comfortable. Um, so we were under a table that we thought might take some impact. And if it took... Any impact at all, that was better than no impact. That's the way we saw it. And we didn't have any time to, to figure out or look around and choose a rock that we might jump behind. And we didn't have any visibility to do that, even if we wanted to. So, you know, your choice is narrowed and you just done what was innately, you know, um, obvious to you to do. And some people had different reactions. The French guy in our team, his reaction was to hold the pole of the tent up, which was an insanely clever thing to do because um, we'd all have got flattened otherwise. But as it happens, when it hit us, it, the energy had mostly gone out of it. Now, we don't know that. When it's coming flying at you, you have no idea whether it's at the strongest or its weakest. You have no idea whether it's just you know, a plume from a shockwave or a genuine avalanche. You have no idea whether it's got rocks in it and pieces of equipment or whether it's nothing. You have no, none of that retrospective information. So you have to assume the worst when it's coming flying at you. So we just got under something and hope for the best. And then, so when when it does hit, you guys are you guys are okay. The it was it was. What's the what's the aftermath of that? So we got out. Um, it, it hit on the on the whole of the tent. So the tent started to feel like you were in a storm. Okay. Um, and then it calmed down. So it didn't get worse. We thought it was going to feel like a storm. Then it was going to start moving. Then it was going to get stronger. And then off we go. Um, but no, it it, it died down. And then eventually there was silence. And so we crept outside. Everything was covered in a really thick layer of white. Um, and we thought really that we that had just been a bit of a, a blast of light snow from an avalanche caused by the earthquake. Nothing more than that. And all of our thinking at that point was there was about 170 people up the mountain. that was between Camp 1 and Camp 2 who had gone ahead. So we, st we stagger the rotation so that everyone isn't going through the ice wall at the same time. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of people already at Camp 1 and Camp 2, and our thinking was they are screwed. You know, Camp 1 is a known avalanche zone, so this is not good for them. 
looks like it's okay for us though. So we thought we were on the good end of that whole deal at that point. And it took a few minutes for the radios to crackle and for people to start getting messages through that the middle of base camp is in trouble. Um, and then, you know, a guy came in just covered in white, covered in thick snow. Um, and he started shouting that they needed help at the middle of camp. So we geared up and started to walk out of our little uh, compound, if you like, into the middle of base camp. Uh, and that's where it became apparent that the whole middle of base camp was gone. Just completely wiped out. Completely wiped out. All of the camps that were there, there was a, there was a camp there from a UK company, Jagged Globe, gone. Um, there was five or six teams that we would have recognized, gone. Um, couldn't see any structures of any tents. All we could see was basically equipment and torn pieces of material all over the floor. You'd come across a sleeping bag and then a book and then something else. And it was like walking through a plane crash. That's the nearest analogy I can think. And so you're not expecting this when you start walking and then you start walking and you're trying to figure out what's happened here. And then you realize, no, they're all gone. Like this has all been blasted away. And then we got to the middle of base camp where the emergency medical tent is. And luckily enough, that was still standing. It was one of the only structures still standing. And they were at full full flow at that point. And so as you're approaching it, the, the snow turns from white into a kind of a white-red combination. And you realize, right, there's some problems here. Um, and when we got in, yeah, they were treating people, triaging people in the middle of camp that had major impact injuries. So what had happened was a lot of people, when they felt what we felt, um, done exactly what we'd done, which was to walk outside and go, what the hell is going on? So you stand up and you look around you, which is an obvious human reaction. And the blast had reached them a lot earlier than us. And it just picked them up and threw them just like ragdolls wow. all over the middle of base camp. And it was throwing them plus kitchen equipment, plus tent equipment, plus rocks, plus everything else all in the same direction. So there was a lot of pretty serious uh, impact wound injuries. Um, and the doctors just said, look, we need you to carry people across base camp to the other side where there might be the possibility of helicopter evacuation later if the weather ever improves. Um, so we basically put people on, on gurneys and basically just carried them the kilometer or so across base camp. And at that point, they were putting like the, the walking wounded would go in one direction. If you had serious impact wounds, you would be sent in another direction. So there were people on rocks with, with you know, walkie-talkies even at that point going, okay, we've got an incoming serious leg wound, you're going across to the International Mountain Guides tent or you're going across to the Himex tent because those tents were empty because all the climbers were up the mountain. Um, so that, that whole end of base camp became the hospital end of base camp, if you like, where all of the climbers with any medical experience were basically sent in there to do whatever they could to try and tend for these people because we couldn't get help in. We couldn't get helicopters or anything because the, the weather was too poor. So we knew that for the entire day we would be in it on our own. And it was up to everyone to just kind of figure out how to deal with the situation you were in. It's and it, was this a, like a really big disaster as well, like from a like a loss of life point of view? Did how did those climbers get back down for the 170 that were up there? Were they affected? What happened there? It, it, as it happens, the people up the mountain were safer than the people at base camp. So yeah. as we were doing the the carries of people across the medical tents, um, we become aware the first carry that there's a few people that died, and then you become aware the second carry that we're into like half a dozen here. On the third one, you realize you're in double figures. And then as you keep going, you realize it's 13, 14, 15. Okay, it's 18 people. Now it's bigger than the previous year. And then I think one person died afterwards in Kathmandu. So it ended up being 19 people that were killed or died as a result of what happened at base camp. And, you know, at one point we went across to the other side of base camp 
And uh, the guy who was our expedition leader in Antarctica was managing one of the big teams on that side of the mountain and that side of base camp. And I met him and he was managing that, coordinating that whole side of the camp. And he asked myself and the Norwegian climber that was with me if, um, if we'd help him carry some people across the helipad. And uh, it, it became very obvious very quickly that he meant people that had passed away who needed to be carried up and placed on the helipad or the area that the helicopter might come to and then covered with tarp. Uh, my body turned white. I don't think I, I turned a whole lot different, a shade of color. And, um, and then he realized, okay, well, you guys, I need you to do that instead. Because at that moment in time, I think that was just too much of a shock for us. Uh, so you're trying to get yourself into the reality of it slowly, because it has to dawn on you that this has happened. And then you've got to figure out how best to protect yourself and to protect everyone around you from what's just happened as well. You know, so it's it, it's not a natural thing to run in, want to do everything, want to be the big hero. You've got to, it, it's a lot more complex a situation than that. Some people didn't want to be in it at all. We were happy to be in it, but we were aware that if we didn't watch ourselves while we were in that situation, we might have a long road ahead of us as well, you know. Uh, and we were aware that we were in the middle of the blast zone and we didn't know if it was the start of the earthquake or the end of it. So we were constantly aware that, you know, we're carrying somebody very slowly across this really difficult terrain. Um, if it comes again, we've all had it, you know. Um, but your adrenaline kicks in. And I tell you, your adrenaline kicks in like that, in a situation like that, you focus on one thing and you do that. And it's very true. People can do extraordinary things. And I've seen some people at base camp do extraordinary things that day. Um, once you're focused on one thing and one thing only. And that's what we were for the whole day. So we ended up, you know, in a place that had taken the, the brunt of the damage. 19 people were killed. There was about 60 people that were really badly injured that needed helicopter evacuation, which didn't happen until the next day. And all the people at Camp 1 and Camp 2 were stuck there. They couldn't move. Because the icefall had all that great root that had been planted through the icefall was gone. The icefall was just a broken set of Lego pieces now. And you couldn't plant a root from Camp 1 or Camp 2 back down to base camp. So they were stranded there. So the next morning, once the, the helicopters arrived the next morning, and they started to ferry people out. Um, so there was a big operation on that side of base camp to get all of the badly injured onto the helicopters and get them out. And once that had been done, those helicopter pilots then turned around and flew up through the mist up to Camp 1 and Camp 2 to get all the people that were up there. So they spent the day ferrying people back down to base camp. Some of the most amazing flying I've ever seen, some of the bravest flying I've ever seen. So you had, a, you had some of the bravest medical work I've ever seen people do at base camp. And then you've had some of the most the bravest aviation I've ever seen done in my life. You know, and I'm an aerospace engineer, so I have skin in that game. But those guys, the way they flew those helicopters that day was just insane. Um, and, and they got everyone back down at the base camp from a situation that could have been a, a second disaster. It's, it seems like this is such a... It, those types of things that happen in your life must have a big impact. When you guys, when you guys finally get back, and I remember the last time you got back, it was very much you had one foot still in. But was it? Did you think about things a little bit, uh, a little bit stronger the second time? It seems like you've been really at the cold face of what the the worst case scenario or one of the worst case scenarios that can happen. Yeah, I suppose the first time we were slightly divorced from what happened, we had the we had the luxury of being slightly divorced from the real impact of what happened, especially politically to the sharp and otherwise. Um, 
this time we didn't. This time we, you know, we were right at the cold place. There was no getting away from what had happened. We were part of it. Um, and I remember leaving base camp the next day. We decided to get out of there because we just didn't trust our surroundings anymore. And we decided to get down the mountain to a valley where we thought we weren't a threat from all of the ice and snow on the mountains around us. And I remember leaving base camp thinking, screw you, base camp. You know, if I never come back here, it won't be a bad thing. Um, and really meaning it, you know. Uh, now, that feeling changes over time. But I remember feeling angry that that had happened in a place that... But then you, you very quickly become aware that, you know, across Nepal, like, thousands of people had been killed or, yeah. you know, I think the number ended up being 9,000. Our Sherpa needed to get back to their valley because um, a lot of them lived in a, in a village where there was glacier, glacial lake at the end of the village. And they didn't know whether the glacial lake had just swept through and destroyed their village. A lot of them didn't know if they had homes to go to. So you became aware that, okay, you've got your problem here, which is that your mission's gone and you've had to experience all of this stuff, right? That's just things that have happened to you. But they don't know what's happened to their entire families. You know, I can get on a Qatar Airways plane and come home. Um, but, but I didn't choose to get on a Qatar Airways plane and come home. I decided I didn't want to go home yet. Um, so I went back to Kathmandu. It took us a long time to get off the mountain. It took us a few days. We stayed around in the valley for a long time. and We let everyone else kind of pass us by and head down. And when there was nobody left, we then slowly trekked down through the Kumbu Valley through villages that would be packed. There was nobody on that route. We were completely alone on that Everest base camp route. Um, and we were one of the last teams off the mountain to get back to Kathmandu. And I stayed around then. There was a, there was a group called Nepal Ireland that were doing some relief work. And I stayed around and I helped them out for a while. And I found that very cathartic, to be honest, because I got to see some of the relief work going on. Um, I didn't add a great deal. I don't think I added a great deal of value except, you know, point some light to it. But um, I got to see what the valleys around Kathmandu were like and how destroyed the places had been and the direct impact it had on people's lives. And I got to see how resilient the locals were. You know, we, we, I remember one stage going down to the big tent area where all the tents were because um, people were sleeping outside. They didn't trust their houses anymore. Nobody, everyone was just so scared of being indoors. And we saw this little crappy tent at the end of all these beautiful Chinese-sponsored tents. There was this little crappy tent. And I looked inside and there was three guys inside studying. And I said, what, what the hell are you studying? And they said, we're studying Korean. Because if we can learn Korean, we can get there, get some work, get some money, send it back, rebuild our house and carry on. And they said it all with a smile on their face. I'm not lying. And I thought, okay, yeah, that's, that's a bit of perspective there as well. So I came back feeling a lot more perspective and balance and just, feeling that I'd actually been very lucky rather than coming back. If I just got on the plane and come back straight away, I'm pretty sure I would have sat there with a bit of a woe as me head on me for a while. Yeah. Um, I thought, no, actually this, you know, these people have a long road ahead of them. Focus on that rather than, you know, you'll find a way back. You found a way there twice. You've survived. You're lucky rather than unlucky, uh, even though it might appear the opposite. So, you know, um, you'll find a way back again. That's, that's, that's the attitude I came back with. Nice. So it's, it's, I know right now it's hard to it's hard to plan with all the COVID stuff. And uh, but is there have, have you planned? Is there a new route that you're planning? Is there a new thing that you're that you're like? Kind of you have like a a plan that you can kind of break glass uh, when it's when it's the time is right. Or yeah, it's forming. Um, it may be via the north side rather than the south side. 
Um, I think it would be good mentally to have a different mountain to climb. Um, and it is a different mountain when you climb it from the Tibet side rather than the Nepal side, because you can climb it from either side. Cool. It's very different. There's no ice fall on the Tibet side, but there's a lot of other objective dangers on that side. And it's on the Chinese side. So it's not as amenable to, you know, being able to have easy rescue and so on and so forth. Um, but I think it'd be good to climb it from the other side to get that different experience. Before, when COVID was happening at the start of last year, I was on volcanoes down in uh, Ecuador, climbing the three big volcanoes down there. And that was preparation towards a return. And that return might've been this year. It wouldn't have been last year. It might've been this year. But the problem I have now is that um, because last year didn't happen and because this year is going to be so restricted, there's, there's such a demand, there's such a pent up demand now yeah. um, in a situation where numbers were already getting sky high and dangerously high, that you, your mission is no longer prepare for the mountain, understand the mountain, understand altitude, go. It's now all of that thing plus, right, how are you going to manage all of the crowds? What are you going to do when you're queuing for, to get up the Hillary step? How resilient is your body to spending that long in a thick queue here versus there? So there's a whole lot of other stuff that comes into play, especially if you're going in years where there's been a backlog or where there's pent up demand. So I wouldn't be inclined to, this year is a great year to go from a numeric perspective. I think it's a horrible year to go from every other perspective. Yeah. Because if you're in an unventilated tea house, as they all are, with loads of smoke from the fire, with loads of people coughing and spluttering, as they always are, pick out the people who have COVID, pick out the people that don't. Yeah. You know, and tell me your antigen tests are good enough versus your PCRs that you don't have access to at that point, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah. So there's so many things that, you know, you, you could end up decimating a village by, you know, by, by going just there and, Yeah. So, but numerically, it would be a great year, but I think in every other respect, it won't. Next year, I think it's going to be a nightmare. <laughs> I think it's just going to be so, unless they bring in quotas, which they're not going to do, um, there's going to be so many people over there. So it's again with the circumstance thing, you know, you, you, can, you can have all the great intentions in the world, but you have to make sure that everything lines up as well and that you don't find yourself pushed ahead by the want to finish it, you know, and then all of a sudden you're in the most crowded year the mountain's ever seen and you don't make it because the crowds were too big. That would really suck. It's just so much to, to think about. It's, it's kind of, it's, I was talking to Mark about it. so Mark. I don't know if we've, we've sold you on on uh, climbing one of these big big guys. Not uh, Everest, uh, anyway. Not Jesus. Everest. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know what, Mark? We're gonna we'll we'll, we'll come back with a plan and maybe start uh, on the Sugarloaf here, and then we'll take. I, I think we turned back one day on the Sugarloaf. If I'm not. Yeah, I was. I used the Sugarloaf for training when I when I moved back to Ireland to train for Antarctica. I used to go down to where's the football field? Is it down at Roundwood or somewhere like that? Running Roundwood, yeah. And I would go to Roundwood, I'd cycle from Drumcondra to Roundwood, and then I'd put the bike up on my shoulders, and I'd go through the fields and go up the back way, up to the top of the Sugarloaf of the bike, and then back down the normal way, and back on the bike, and back to Drumcondra. So that was my Sugarloaf adventure. I, we, I think we, we, we kind of, we drove halfway up, Mark, I think, and then the car park and that, so it was, you know, it, was, it wasn't a great attempt, but listen, we'll, we'll do that again some other time, um, but it seems, what I would like to, to take away, the takeaway from today's podcast, and it's been fabulous, and I feel like we could talk for hours and hours on the details of all the the, the different uh, peaks that, you, that you've We done. never talked about the volcanoes. Never even talked about the volcanoes in Ecuador, although I've got a, I've got a quick story about that, actually, uh, we've got two minutes here, so 
basically me and my wife were staying in a, like a guest house in Ecuador and they um one of the we woke up and the, all the family were like huddled around uh, the TV like the kids and everything and they were watching the Ecuadorian news and there was a big volcano going off and they're all kind of like worried about it and then we looked outside and it was actually across the way from us we could see it going off uh, and we're like should we be worried they're like not nah. really <laughs> like not really okay so then we left but uh my point is the i think happiness in life is a hard thing to kind of uh, define or to kind of chase after it's kind of kind of the, the pot of gold at the end of the of the rainbow but i think that uh, building a life that you're excited about building something that you can say okay this is going to be something that i'm going to do i'm going to achieve this i'm going to i'm excited to go to south america to you know do this specific thing i have to do all this planning i think that that i think that gives people um, a lot of enjoyment kind of day to day even if it's going to take a year to plan um same with if you're doing an iron man same if you're doing anything like that so the actual doing of it is great but i think i i think if people have something in the future that they're really excited about i think that builds enjoyment into all of their life you know and it doesn't have to be mountains it does it could be swimming uh, across a channel or maybe i'm going too crazy I mean, it could be like you know starting a business it could be, it could be really anything that you're excited about but i think uh if you're if you're unhappy with your life or if you're spending most of your time just chilling with Netflix every single night when you could be planning for something uh, yeah. very exciting, I think that there's something there that people are missing, especially now in COVID. This is a great time to uh, put some plans together, uh, make a list of st- stuff that you want to do for the rest of the uh, rest of the decade and, uh, you know, put in a little, uh, build a little bit of planning around that. I think that would be great. Uh, Paul, it has been an absolute pleasure to, to chat to you today. Really, really interesting i learned a lot i'm sure a lot of people that are listening i uh, learned a lot as well it's one of the longer uh, podcasts that we've done recently we just couldn't uh i couldn't uh stop asking all these questions <laughs> so thank you so much for giving us all this time this saturday morning mark baker will chat tomorrow i'm sure <laughs> but uh that's it for us today actually one more question would you prefer you're out there in london would you prefer a shark pod t-shirt that looks like this or a shark pod mug what would you prefer paul I think a mug. We will get that mug out to you after this. Uh, thanks very much, Paul. Oh, and let's uh, let's chat soon. We, we, after you do the uh, the, the final uh, summit of uh, of uh, Everest, let's do a, a bonus episode where we uh, you know we have a virtual beer and uh, take it from there. Thanks very Good much, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Good to talk to you.